0: Well, this morning we're picking up in a series that we paused last week. We went from the last book of the Bible and we jumped back to the first book of the Bible. So we're back in the last book of the Bible this morning. So we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 11. And we're in a series right now. Called In Our Midst. And we've been looking at beginning with Jesus' um, revealing of himself to John and a vision. John um, was on the island of Patmos and he had a vision of the Lord Jesus and sees him in all of his glory, this very vivid picture and, uh, of his power and authority. And it says he was standing among the lampstands. And John tells us, or Jesus tells us rather, that the lampstands um, are the churches. And so what is going on here is Jesus is revealing himself in all power and all authority, moving and working and observing among the local church. And so when we gather this morning, we know as we gather in Jesus' name, as his church, that Jesus is in our midst. Um, that He is here today, that He is present with us, He is present with His people. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, and so He's here with us today. And um, what we're doing, since that we talked about that a few weeks ago, is we're going church by church and looking at the seven churches in Revelation. There are seven, di- seven different churches in the first three chapters that Jesus addresses. Real churches uh, that were in that part of Revelation. Um, what is modern-day Turkey, um, in Asia in that day, uh, the province of Asia, uh, that were scattered around. And Jesus said addressed these seven churches in particular issues they faced. And what we find as we look at these churches is that churches today still deal with these same issues. And some of the churches have some good things and some bad things, like most churches. And some of some church, the churches pretty much just have bad things, like some churches. And some of the churches are just, you know, Jesus didn't really have anything negative to say. They're just doing really well, and Jesus is encourages them. encourages them. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And so this morning, we're looking particularly at the church in Smyrna. Okay, that's a fun name to say, Smyrna. And, uh, and this is the church in pain, or the suffering church, or the persecuting church. And this is a church that Jesus is not going to have anything negative to say to. But it's a church that's enduring a lot of pain and reproach for the sake of His name. Name. It's the persecuted church. And so we don't think a lot about persecution in our society um, for Christians, but it's a very real thing. I'll give you some stats here um, from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, they quoted two sources for this. One is from Open Doors USA, and they released this quote, uh, this stat, an average of 180 Christians are killed for believing in Jesus each month all over the world. Every month, 180 Christians killed. For simply naming the name of Christ, the U.S. Department of State says that Christians face persecution because of the fa- because of their faith in sixty countries around the world. Sixty countries around the world persecute Christians either through their government or through their neighbors just for naming the name of Christ. And so, we have brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. If you're a believer who do not worship. Uh, and the freedom that we are allowed to this morning. They don't gather in beautiful communities and nice buildings and grab nice cups of coffee and, and come in and sit and then leave and go to brunch or lunch or whatever um, at the end of the service and, and pick up their children from childcare. They They huddle in dark rooms by lamp and by candlelight, hoping that nobody catches them and that they don't have to die for their gathering. That goes on in this world in the year 2015. Um, Everybody doesn't have the same freedoms we have. Persecution is a very real thing. But even in our own culture, sometimes we debate whether do we, have, do we face persecution here, right? And I would say we, we do at various levels, but there's different levels of persecution. There are some levels that are just much more mild and some that are much more severe. And even here, we see an increasing climate, as we've talked about before. The climate continues to increase to make persecu- persecution More and more a very real possibility. And we see various levels of it. So we live in a time when some in our culture would have you believe um, that you're extreme or anti-women if you believe that abortion is wrong. And we've seen some of the videos that have I won't get into all the details that were released this week. And there are some that would actually take the position that if you are pro-life, that you are extreme or anti-women or something like that because you want to protect the rights of unborn children. Some would mock and some would, not everybody, but some would. Some would consider you extreme or a bigot. If you don't hold to their view on sexuality or on marriage and you believe in traditional or biblical marriage between a husband and a wife and one husband and one wife and just very basic biblical things that the Bible has always said and that Christians have always held to that in today's culture we're seeing an increasing climate where it's getting harder and harder to hold to those things and not experience some slander. Some gossip, some caricaturing, some some casting a a negative light on you for those beliefs. And that just continues to ratchet up more and more as our society becomes more and more secularized. And so the more and more the culture as a whole moves away from Judeo-Christian principles, right, that we've seen in our country, the more and more it becomes more and more likely that you'll face various types of persecution, And so if you hold to a religious view um, about marriage and and it it affects how you run your florist or it affects how you run your photography business or something like that and somebody decides they'll gang up and shut your business down um, because you don't hold to their view and you won't participate in them, that is a type of persecution. Now, it's not the same as being murdered or being locked in jail. Don't misunderstand me, but it is a type. And so that's my point. There are different levels, but in our culture, it's much more sparse It's much less consistent, it's much more scattered, and sometimes it's based upon the regions and the place of the country you live. But Jesus promised us we would face persecution. Sometimes we get a little confused in our culture, is we don't face persecution for saying Jesus is Lord. There are places in the world you say Jesus is Lord and you will die, right? If you just believe in Jesus. We face persecution when we live like Jesus is Lord. All right? When you live out His teachings many times, when you live your life submitted to Him and His Word, many times that ratchets up in your own life some of the types of persecution. Listen to what Jesus said about this in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. I want to set this up before we read this short passage this morning. This is in the Beatitudes. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Beatitudes that, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, all that. Matthew five eleven and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, there's various levels of this. In verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus tells us we're blessed when this happens. The Bible tells us to expect it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote Timothy and said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise will be persecuted. goes back to that various levels, less consistent. We're, we live in a country, we're fortunate enough, that biblical principles have impacted a lot of the laws, a lot of the things that are in place in our culture. And so that has kept persecution at a minimum compared to other parts of the world where it has not been founded upon principles that were influenced in that way. And so where persecution is much higher. And so we're blessed in that way. But it comes at various levels. Kevin, DeYoung, Author and pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote, As followers of a crucified king, we should expect to be like the scum of the earth to some, 1 Corinthians 4.13, and like the aroma of death to others, 2 Corinthians 2.16. We should not think misinformed hatred and intolerant harassment mean the church has gone off the rails. The presence of persecution is no sign that Christians have failed to engage the world properly. And sometimes we do that, right? People don't treat us exactly like we want them to for what we believe. And we think we must be doing something wrong. And sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes, though, we just have to understand Jesus promised us that this would happen. If there's never any friction between the world or between those who stand outside of Christ and those who have chosen to believe that Jesus is Lord, if there's never any rub, if there's just never any... Something's wrong because the Bible promises there would be. We don't seek it out. It's just a fact. It's just, it's just, you know, what goes up must come down sort of thing. So last week we saw, excuse me, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus with Ephesus talking to them about the lack of love that is in their church. So what's he going to say to this church? It's suffering slander and persecution from those around them. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. This is what Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is addressing this church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a beautiful place in the province of Asia. Um, It was of great importance in the region. It kind of battled with Ephesus of being the first city in the area. And today, the third largest city, uh, Izmir, the third largest city in Turkey stands in its place. It's the, it's the only of the seven churches, I believe, that's actually still got a city that's it, got a different name now, but still stands there in its place, is still active. And this city was destroyed in 580 B.C., okay? And then it was rebuilt in 290 B.C. by um, Lysimachus. Now, Paige Patterson in the New American Commentary says the beauty, of, this is what he says about the beauty of Smyrna. He says, what accounted for the beauty of Smyrna was not its location, topographically or geographically, unlike many of the cities that developed with purpose and forethought. The city planners of Smyrna had obviously done their homework. Theirs was a cohesiveness and a pattern about the architecture that made it blend together. And as one stood at the sea harbor, looking up toward the top of Mount Pegasus, he could see a panorama that led it to be called a crown. Others referred to it as a flower or a statue. So think about it. This is like one of the first pre-planned cities. It's like and Park, right? They put thought into everything and how it looked and the unity of this place. And then it had this um, uh, port, this harbor that you come into and the mountain there. And so it was just this beautiful scene to kind of come into. And it was one of the few cities that they would actually put thought into the seamlessness of the architecture. This was also one of the most fiercely loyal cities to Rome of all of the provinces was one of the first to worship the Roman emperor as Lord. Winning the right to erect a temple to the Roman emperor under Tiberius. And so they bid and they, were one of, they won the competition to be able to be the ones that built the temple to worship the emperor. So I mean these people, when it, when it came to Rome, they were loyal. When it came to worship, they were all about Caesar. And they had obviously had various other idols and idolatries just like the rest in Rome did that they worship. And Christianity was not an accepted religion by Rome at this time. And at this point, the church's history, they're starting to feel persecution from Rome. And we see here in this passage, some of that is is also coming from the Jewish community. And so, because in this church, you've got some who were Jews, who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so now, the people that they used to go to, you know, worship with, or some of them are persecuting them now, because the Jewish group, they could worship how they wanted to, because their religion was accepted. But the Christian group, they were viewed as like this heretical thing, and it wasn't accepted by Rome. And so, they were trying to force them to worship Caesar. The Jews are mad at them because they believed in Jesus as Messiah, and so they're in this weird situation where both the Gentiles and the Jewish group—some uh, of these Jews—are are, kind of they're kind of there's this friction. They're kind of caught in the middle as these outsiders who are enduring persecution now, coming kind of from both sides in this situation. And the name Smyrna is associated with the word myrrh. Now, when you think of myrrh, you think of Jesus, right? And the, the, the wise men bringing him the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh was used as a perfume, and it was for both the living and for the dead, right? It was, it was used as an, an, an embalming fluid and things, and things of that nature, which is interesting. Smyrna is kind of associated with that name because this is a place where the church is persecuted and people are dying and going to die for their faith, right? And so there's just all these kind of word plays in the Greek language here with the church at Smyrna. And what Jesus does is he, I, I think he gives them um, three important promises for us when we face suffering and we face persecution. The first thing we see here is that we see that Jesus is the answer in our pain. Look at what he says there. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In these passages, you can tell a lot by the way Jesus addresses the churches. He constantly goes back to the visions and things that have already taken place in the first chapter of Revelation. And in the first chapter, he revealed himself as the first and the last. And he comes back and he says, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. And so that's the introduction he uses to address Smyrna. And in that, in that phrase, is what they ultimately need to hear He's going to tell them why they need to hear it after that, but they need to hear this. They need to understand who Jesus is because they need to cling to Him in the midst of the suffering and pain because in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their suffering, while they might be looking for answers outside, right? Jesus is still the answer in the midst of their pain. He says, I'm the first and the last. That's synonymous with being the Alpha and the Omega. This is used in Isaiah to refer to God. Uh, Jesus is applying a term for God to Himself here. Jesus exists eternally, right? He's not a part of creation. He is creator. He is the agent of creation, Colossians, Colossians tells us. But not only that, Jesus lives forever. He's eternal. He's eternal. And so, He's sovereign over time. And for a people who feel like the times are against them, this is a big deal to understand that Jesus is sovereign over the time. They need to know that while in this moment in time, all seems to be falling apart, Jesus holds sway. He was before it, and all things are ultimately headed towards a collision course with him. And because he's the first in life, everything finds its meaning in him. And for a people whose world is kind of falling apart around them, you need to hear that. And the second thing he tells them, he says, I have died and came to life. Now, don't forget, this is a city that had experienced a resurrection of sorts. It had died and came back to life, had been refounded. So there's a lot of play here. But Jesus is telling them, he said, I'm the one who has died physically and have chosen to come back to life, and this is interesting that it's paired with Jesus being the first and the last, because the first and the last is a clear reference to Him being God. How is the one who's the first and the first and the last, the one who kind of stands above time and holds it in His hands, how does He die? How does He enter into time and die and come back to life? And it's the illusion here, it's not an illusion, the the pointing here to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. That at a moment in time, Jesus took on human flesh. That God the Son came into this world to take on human flesh so that He might die for you and I and be raised from the dead. And for a people who are suffering, and some of them, He's about to tell them, are going to die and are suffering because of the sins of others and because of persecution and things like that, that, they need to be reminded of the suffering and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus leads with this. Because when the world is beating you up and you're hurting, and when persecution is heating up around you more than anyone, you need to know that God is on your side. He's walked in your shoes. That He has come out victoriously and that you can share in that victory. So in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution for the faith, Jesus is the answer. And more than anything, you need to know and be close to Christ in those times. There's there's what you think you need, what you want, and there's what you really need, right? And so when you're in these situations, you might be wanting answers. You want out. You might want revenge. But Jesus knows they need victory, which He has secured on the cross and in His resurrection. Jesus knows they need strength. And He's the first and the last. And He's the one that can give it to them. And He's the one that can give them peace in the midst of all of this. Jesus knows what they need. And what they need ultimately is Christ. His present activity in their life. That's what you and I need. We'll go through any kind of pain or any kind of suffering. Persecution aside. But secondly, Jesus wants them to know and understand that He knows their pain. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation. I know. I understand. I know what you're going through. Your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The one who walks among the lampstands, the one who's first and the last, He knows and understands everything that you're going through. That's what He wants them to get. He says... I've got all this power and I'm authoritative and I hold the keys to death and hell, death and Hades and all this, but I want you to know, I understand what you are going through. I'm not not over here and you're over there. I'm with you and in the midst of you and I, I know your situation, your tribulation. It means trouble, affliction, distress. Things weren't easy there. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. Your poverty. This was a poor church. The Greek word that is used here for poverty... People note how it's a particularly strong word. It doesn't mean that they just had a little bit. It means they didn't have anything. I mean, they had just been stripped. They were were, were poor. Literally in poverty. And a likely scenario that most believe was that the poverty was because of their faith. Christianity was not accepted, as we mentioned earlier. So they didn't worship the emperor. If they didn't worship the emperor, they could find themselves having having trouble finding jobs and and competing in the marketplace with others who did worship the emperor. And then you had the, the Jews who were also coming against them because they didn't like what they were believing and teaching about Jesus and being the Messiah. And so you had them, we're going to see here in just a moment, who were slandering them, trying to get them in trouble. And because of all this, they're having trouble. Their businesses aren't flourishing. They're not able to participate probably in the guilds. kind of like, I think of it kind of like labor unions and things like that of their day. They're, just, they're not getting a fair shake in the marketplace. And they're kind of being shut out. And they're poor. But Jesus says, but you're rich. They might not have understood it, but their poverty was a paradox. Because while they were the poorest people in town, they were the richest people in town. And that's what Jesus wants them to understand. They were poor in the world because they were deprived of many things. Because of people's hostility to the faith. But they were in fact rich. They were rich obviously in Christ. The Bible says, you know, if you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing right in Christ. But not only that, listen to what James 2.5 says about believers. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? He writes to James writes also to a group of people, some of whom were suffering um, and, were, and, were, and were poor. And he says, do you not know that God chose those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? He says, God's chosen to, to give the gospel to those people, save those people, place the Holy Spirit in the lives of those people, and they are... Poor in the world, but they're rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which God has has promised to those who love Him. Heirs of the kingdom. That's a total contrast to what they were experiencing in the reality of the world. Spiritually, totally different situation. Hebrews 10.34 says something similar. The writer of Hebrews says, For you had compassion on those in prison, right? he encourages them. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. What kind of people joyfully accept their property being plundered? Right? We don't even like people trespassing on our property, much less, much less plundering it. And these people, they're like, Woohoo, you know, plunder my property. And you know, why why would somebody do that? He says, Because you know that you've got a better possession, that this is not the most valuable thing that you have. That 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 their faith was something really real and tangible to them. They they really believed in heaven. They really believed in the kingdom of God. It wasn't just church talk for them. Something to get them through tough times. It was was real for them. So they they found it easy to let go of money. They found it easy to be generous to people. They found it easy to live like they weren't going to live here forever. And they were going to spend a whole lot more time in eternity. Because they really understood and believed that they were heirs of the kingdom. And so while they were poor in this world, they understood they were rich in faith and in Christ. And that they were never going to want, ultimately, in the end, for anything. The Bible is clear. No matter your physical possession, Christ, if you're a believer this morning, you're exceedingly rich. And we are heirs of the kingdom. We, are, we have that better possession that it speaks of. But what if you do have a lot in this life? And most of us, compared to the rest of the world, do. Majority, great majority of this room do have a lot, compared to the rest, some parts of the world. 1 Timothy 6.18 says that for those who are affluent, they are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. So you're supposed to share and you're supposed to be generous. Okay, I got it. But, well, here's the thing. Here's one. How do you do that? How do you get in that position where you're generous and you're ready to share and you're doing good to others? The same way the poor person is able to feel like and realize that they're rich and to live by faith and not to be consumed with doubt and worry, is the same way the rich person is able to give lots of stuff away. Both understand they have a greater possession. Both understand that they're a member of they're an heir of the kingdom. And whether you've got tens of dollars or millions of dollars, if you're in Christ, the best thing you have, the most valuable thing you have is not of this world, even if you have a lot of stuff of this world. And so the Bible says what we're to do is we're to leverage what we have, both corporately and individually, generosity, to be, do good and to share. The Christian can be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, and we can do this because we know there's more to life than this world. And so corporately as a church, that means we put ourselves in a position that we show that we're generous. We, let, we leverage our resources corporately to be generous. And at the same time, individually, we, 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 we express that in our lives. That's what God calls us to. The church looked beat up. It looked financially broke. It looked hurting. This did not look like a church that was going to be the hot, the hot church in town that everybody wanted to come come, come join and be a part of. It's, I mean, you know, I mean, they, they couldn't find jobs. They were all poor. They were broke. They, they passed the offering plate. And there's like a wrap, gum wrapper in it, and that's it. You know, there's, there's just nothing. And Jesus says, this church is blessed. It's rich. This is a good church, folks. You see something totally different than everybody else in that Roman province would have seen when he looked at those believers. Because sometimes looks can be deceiving. The way things look on the outside is not necessarily true of what's going on on the inside or what's necessarily true about the inherent value or worth of something. I was thinking about that this weekend. I was thinking about, I love when um, you see Willie Nelson on TV like playing, and, and playing his guitar and stuff like that. You ever seen his guitar? It, it, it's got a huge hole in it. And it looks, if you found it on the street out here, you'd pick it up and you'd take it over here to the dumpster in the back and you'd put it in there. That's what, it looks like garbage. <laughs> it look I mean, it's just like, it's just beat up, a huge hole in the side of it. It's kind of like, how does that thing even sound good? If you've, and, you know, if you, you know, if you've never seen it, go YouTube. You'll probably find him playing. He's been playing it for like 300 years. Holds Willie Nelson. I don't know. But, um, you know, and when you find out it's Willie Nelson's, you're like, well, that thing will be in the Smithsonian one day. I think it's priceless. It's actually art. It's extremely valuable. And everything changes when you understand who it belongs to. Right? And in the same way, this broken, hurting, impoverished church to the outside, to the world, man, who wants to be a part of that? But when you understand that it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the first and the last, who died and has lived again, you understand, wow, it's priceless. It's priceless. To the point that Jesus is willing to shed His blood for this church. It's a incredible value and worth but in the midst of all this they're being slandered for their faith And jesus these believers were were being talked about and and bashed in the greek the word slander there is the word for blasphemy but it's translated slander because it's being appropriated to people but when you talk about it towards god it's blasphemy so it's a very strong word that's being used against them these people are speaking evil and lies about the church What is likely happening is that these Jews who had rejected Christ were telling lies to the government in order to get the Christians in trouble and make them further outcasts in society and making it more difficult for them to find employment and things like that and to have the government apply pressure to them. See, in the first century, Christians were called a lot of things. Did you know that? Christians were called cannibals in the first century because of the Lord's Supper. Um, We know they were twisting the meaning of the Lord's Supper and what was going on there. They were called atheists. Because they rejected the false gods of the Greeks, so you must not believe in any gods. They were called atheists. They, they were they were called immoral for various reasons. They were called disloyal, disloyal to Rome because they didn't wouldn't worship Caesar. I mean, it's all kinds of just remarks in the first century. The types of things that were probably going on here. That those types of slander. People have been talking bad about Christians and the Lord Jesus for thousands of years, and it ain't slowing down until Jesus comes back. Right? I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. It's just the fact of the matter. And slander against the church and against believers is one type, one way that the church can be persecuted. And he says these particular people, he calls them a synagogue of Satan, which is an interesting phrase, right? Kind of strong words here coming from Jesus, by the way. He says they are not who they say they are. He doesn't mean that they're not e- ethnically Jewish. That's not his point. He means that they aren't spiritually the people of God that they're claiming to be. And by their rejecting of God's Son as the Messiah and the way they're treating God's people who have faith in God's Son, the Messiah, they're showing themselves to actually be behaving more like Satan than the one that they claim is their father. Jesus said something very similar to some of the religious leaders in his day. In John 8, Jesus said this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus, Jesus is talking to a bunch of religious folks who, who are like the cream of the crop in their society, the religious leaders, and he says, You think your father's Abraham and ultimately your father's God, but you're actually your father's the devil because you act like who your father is. And as a believer, if your father's God, you should have your father's heart. You should have your father's heart. You should love like he loves, and, and serve like he serves. Do what he does. But because you lie and, and murder and scheme and slander, well, you're like the slanderer. Satan's the accuser of the brethren, right? You're like him, and that's what he's talking. That's what he's saying about the, this particular group. This particular group of um, people in in Smyrna. And the big picture here is that those in Smyrna were facing painful times and some of it was being inflicted by people who claimed to know God but had rejected Christ. And you had cases of Jews who had believed in Jesus but then other Jews rejected Him and were slandering the Jews that had trusted Him. And then you had the government who didn't respect your beliefs and wouldn't even recognize it as legit, as a, as a religion. And so you your choice was... To be persecuted, or you could reject Christ and go back to Judaism, right? And go back to that. But how do you do that when you've come to understand that the Messiah you've been waiting on, that your whole system is built around, has come? So how do you go back and act like that hasn't happened? And Jesus tells them, I know. I know what you're going through. I know your pain. He'd observed it. He was not absent from it. No one had been more persecuted than Jesus. There was nothing that they could do to them that hadn't already done to Jesus. And he knew it. And the third thing Jesus does is he encourages them in their pain. In verse 10 he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. There's a lot of talk over 10 days. Is it literal? Is it figurative? And it's hard to say. Sometimes that when you see 10, sometimes in prophetic books like this, sometimes it is symbol It um, could mean a short while, a short period of time. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He's encouraging them. And he gives them two commands. He says, first thing I want you to know is do not fear. Do not fear. And fear had to be a major temptation. You need to feed your family. You need to have a job, right? You want to supply uh, you, want, you, want, you want to supply the needs of your family. You want to simply live your life and live out your faith without having to be rejected for that. Fear is a natural response. When pain enters your life, when suffering enters your life, when persecution especially enters your life. But Jesus doesn't call them to a natural response. He calls them to a supernatural response. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. This is not something that's accomplished just in our flesh, on our own, in our own strength. It's accomplished by the strength God supplies. So if we're going to get serious about living our faith, we need to understand something. Sometimes we have to repent of fear. We don't really think of fear as a sin. We think of it more like an emotion. But when Jesus says, don't do it, and we do it anyway, that's a sin. Textbook. <laughs> and we've all, me too, we've all done that. Maybe even this week, right? And sometimes, and, and fear will impede you. It will prevent you from sharing your faith because you fear what people think about you, you fear what they'll say, you fear repercussions on relationships. And so it will, it will hold you back and it will clamp down on your spiritual life and keep you from pursuing God's mission and God's plan for your life. But Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, some of you are going to jail and you're going to die. I mean, how about that? I mean, and, I, and this is under my point, Jesus encouraging them, right? <laughs> but Jesus, he doesn't, he, just lays it, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He just lays it on the table. And he did that all through his ministry, right? He says, hey, whole families are going to split up over this. People are going to fight. People are going to drag you off. People are going to kill you and beat you. And they're going to drag you in front of kings and emperors. And you're going to have to give an account. I mean, Jesus was always very clear about the cost. Of following him. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't play a shell game. Very clear. And he's also here, he's very clear about the who's behind the persecution. Because it's real easy when things get difficult and people say things and do things to forget who the enemy is. He says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Because he wants them to understand you are in a war right and there there really is a devil right i mean we were in the i read a news article this week of some group in detroit that had erected, erected some statue um, to satan it was some weird looking goofy you know horns and goat head and all this kind of stuff and they had like this big ceremony to celebrate the statue just weird vile grossness and and i mean just crazy stuff right and you're like really people like erect a statue in detroit and and worship the devil it just seems like the weirdest strangest thing in the world to me but because we forget well first of all satan is real and secondly you need to understand something he doesn't look like those statues He's not walking around with some goat head. And he, doesn't come to, he doesn't work that way in the world, right? He's much more subtle than that. If he walked around, you know, jumping out and saying boo to everybody, things wouldn't work so well in his, the way they seem to work. When he moves and works and he tempts and he roams the earth, the Bible says, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And many times, those of the darkness disguise themselves as what the Bible says, angels of light, Right? He's smart. And he says, I want you to know and I want you to understand something. It's him who's working against you. Hey, I'm working for you. He's working against you because you need to understand something. Those people that are persecuting you, they're not ultimately the enemy. They're one of the reasons I died. I mean, Paul would have understood this. He was a persecutor. right? Sometimes Jesus takes the persecutors and he turns them into the persecuted. That's what happened with Paul. He used to get a kick out of throwing people in jail for their faith. God radically saves him and he loses his head for his faith in Jesus. And he was happy to do so because he had so been radically transformed by the grace of Jesus. Because we have to remember the people aren't ultimately the problem. There's a spiritual war that is going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against rulers and powers and principalities. Against Satan and demons and those things that we don't we kind of don't talk a lot about. We kind of, you know, we kind of get weirded out when we think about them, and you know. But the Bible talks a lot about this stuff because it's real. But Jesus is greater because it's Him who can give the crown of life. It's Him who can promise you the second death will never hurt you. Satan has nothing to do with that. You know, you go to some of these crazy little. Almost like haunted houses that some of these churches put on. And they drag, you know, these um, somebody has a car wreck, you know, pretend car wreck. And they drag you in front of the devil. And the devil's sitting on a throne. And he's telling you to go to hell and, and drag them off. That's so unbiblical. So unbiblical. Satan's not down there ruling hell. Not down there right now. Roaming the earth, looking for someone to devour. And he's going there to suffer, not to rule. And you know who has the keys to Hades. Jesus, not Satan. And Jesus is saying, look, I have the authority to give life. I have the power to give life. I have the power to conquer death. Do not fear. You have no reason to fear. Not the persecutors and not the one behind the persecution. Because I am the one who stands above time. I am the one who's the first in life. And I'm the one who's died and taken up my life again. And so he says, be fearless. Do not fear. And secondly, he says, be faithful, even unto death. To be faithful means to hold to what you believe, to continue to obey and do what Christ has commanded no matter the cost. To not allow your faith to be modified modified by the cultural pressure, but to be shaped by God's Word. How long am I to be faithful? Unto death. And Jesus is telling them, some of you, that's going to be the case. There's nothing so earth-shattering that should call us away from faithfulness to Jesus. Now... Polycarp is a name that you might have heard before. He's famous in Christian circles for his martyrdom. He's the first recorded martyr we have outside of the Scriptures. right? So once we get outside the Scriptures and we have church history, he's the first recorded martyr we have. And about 60 years after this letter was written, by most accounts, um, Smyrna's pastor, Polycarp, their bishop, their pastor, he was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Some believe, possibly, when this letter was written, we can't know that for sure. It all depends on the time and the history when it played out. But he was definitely alive at this point. Could have been very young. And he was martyred about 155 A.D. And after Polycarp was arrested, he was given the chance to recant of his faith in Christ by the proconsul They bring him in, they give him the opportunity to recant. And we've got an account of this that's been passed down throughout church history. a fascinating thing to read. You can Google it and you can find it all, all out there on the Fascinating account. And upon this urging of being urged to recant his faith, this is what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my Savior? Being pressed more, he said, Since thou art vainly urgent that, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and thou shalt hear them. Being threatened with fire that he would be burned alive by the proconsul. Polycarp responded, Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But art ignorant of the fire, of the coming judgment, and of eternal punishment, reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? bring forth what thou wilt. And ultimately, Polycarp was burned alive for his faith in Christ. And this account is recorded in the encyclical epistle of the church of Smyrna concerning the martyrdom of Polycarp. Nice long title for that article for you. Um, And it depicts a picture of two things, fearlessness and faithfulness. I don't know if he was their first pastor, second pastor, or what, but at some point, that pastor, that bishop, read this letter to that church, and he followed through. He was fearless. I mean, he, he's standing there knowing his life's about to be taken, and he's, and he's saying, hey, you want to talk about what we believe? Let's talk about what we believe. I'm not going to recant. He's, he's, and he's faithful unto death. And see, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has the authority here to fulfill the promise that he gives of the crown of life, and then you won't be hurt by the second death. And this is why Jesus is the answer Right to the problem of pain and persecution in particular because he is the first and the last, because he did die and come to life, he has the authority and the ability to give life. If he had the authority but didn't have the ability, what good does that do? And if he had the ability but didn't have the authority, what good does that do? But he has the authority to give life, he has the ability to give life, and he desires to do that. The crown of life would recall the crowns given out in athletic contests of that day. One commentator noted how it would recall how the city looked like a crown. Remember we read at the beginning how when you pulled into the city like on a, on a boat, um, it looked like a crown, some said. And it would have, would have um, reminded them maybe of that. The point is, suffering's not forever. Eternal life is. Jesus is the one who gives the crown of life, who gives eternal life to the faithful. It's not for the unfaithful, but for the faithful. Jesus says. See, our genuine faith in Christ should produce faithfulness to Christ. Genuine faith should produce faithfulness. A faith that never produces the fruit of faithfulness is a fruitless faith and really a useless one. And Jesus says, not only that, but the second death won't hurt you. Now, what does that mean, the second death? You've got to die more than once. Oh, my goodness. You know, isn't it bad enough that you have to die one time? And Jesus says, the second death won't hurt you. Well, this phrase is only used in Revelation. And it's used here first by Jesus. Jesus uses it again in Revelation 21, eight, when he says at the end of the book of Revelation, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And everybody in here has committed at least one of those. More than one, multiple times. And Jesus says, second death. What is the second death? It's the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. He's talking about hell. So this is not a death that means um, it ends, right? He's saying those who continue in their sin unrepentant, who who don't come to Christ for forgiveness, who, who never change, who just continue in a cycle of pursuing their flesh, he says they'll find themselves spending eternity in the state of death. Not unconscious, but very conscious. Not because life is over, but because eternity has just begun. It's a horrible, horrific picture of a Christless eternity. And Jesus says to the one who conquers, you will not be hurt by the second death. See, because believers are conquerors. He's not saying go out there and pull yourself up by the bootstraps so you can whip this thing, right? No, the Bible promises those who are in Christ are more than conquerors, the Bible says in Romans. We're more than conquerors. Not because we're so great, but because he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so we're more than conquerors in the face of persecution, in the face of sin, in the face of suffering. The reason there are things in your life that you don't struggle with quite as much as you used to today, as you did maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago or whatever, is not because you're so great necessarily, It's because He that is in you is greater than those things. And He has progressed you to the point that you are walking more and more and looking more and more like Christ. And so you've seen victory in some areas. And there are areas that you used to really struggle with, with your attitude or whatever. And now you're a much more joyous, happy person. Your temper is nowhere near what it used to be. Right? We could just go down the list. That's Jesus at work in you. You're overcoming. You're a conqueror. The people I worry about are the people that, oh, I've been a Christian for years and there's no life change. There's nothing. There's no conquering of anything. They're conquered. They're defeated by sin. And they're stuck. The Bible says dead in our sins. There's no persecution in their life. There's no suffering for the faith because they're not not faithful to the faith. Jesus says, no, for the believer, the one who has faith in me, the conqueror, who I've conquered for them and I conquer through them. That person, second death will not hurt you because you're going to have the crown of life and you're not going to suffer the second death. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means we have a responsibility to hear and heed God's word. He says every time, every all seven churches, he comes back to this He who has ear to hear, ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if God's given you the ability today to hear and to understand and to comprehend his word, then you have the responsibility to hear it. Not like you hear the radio, but to hear it and to apply it and appropriate it into our lives today. And we need his help and his grace to do that. See. The Bible has things to say about parenting, and we've talked about those things, and finances, and making wise choices, how Christians and the government relate, your work life and working to the glory of God, relationships, um, very important things. The Bible has stuff to say about all that. But this morning, it's about eternity. And the Bible spends a lot of time on that. It's about heaven, and it's about hell. And it's about, is the Jesus that you say you worship, is he? do you feel he's worth suffering? It's about hard things, difficult things, things that you don't sit around the water cooler and talk about. The latest Bible study that's selling off the, you know, racket at way is probably not written about. Hard things that Jesus wants us to address and wants us to contemplate and wants us to think. And see, my role as a pastor is I have the job at times to meet you where you're at and to take God's word and bring that word And so that we, where we're at and where God's Word is and it shapes how we understand and view whatever we're dealing with. Sometimes that's finances and sometimes it's work and sometimes it's parenting and sometimes it's relationship, all these different things. And as we go through the Word, we realize that that happens, right? But it's also, as I've heard it said, my job as your pastor, sometimes to get you to think about things that the things and the weight of this world and the circumstances of this world have a way to press out and cause you to not even think about. But the world just kind of wants to choke out of me and out of you. And it's my job to stand up and say, from time to time, hey, we need to we need to think about these things. Jesus wants us to think about these things. Jesus wants us to look to look at these things. You know that I don't have twelve steps for you today. I don't ha, I don't have five ways to have a better life today. I don't I don't I don't have a, a, a big success sermon for you today. What I have for you today is Jesus' words to a hurting people who are about to die for their faith. And Jesus is saying, "I'm enough. I'm enough. And you're it's going to be okay. And you're rich." And you're not going to suffer the second death. Because as it has been said, if you're only born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. Right? And these were a group of people who had been born again, who had God's Spirit indwelling them, and who had experienced victory through Christ Jesus, through His death and through His resurrection. And they knew that they were going to have life. And that's what you need when you're in the spot that they were in, A lot of the things he could have said to them, this is what they needed to hear. And sometimes this is what we need to hear in the midst of the pain and the gunk and the goop of life and the suffering sometimes that comes. And when things seem like they're falling apart at the edges and the world around you is changing and it's different than it was a generation ago or two generations ago and it seems like a lot's changed even in our own nation in the last five years, even in the last six months, you need to know that Jesus is the answer in the midst of whatever comes. Jesus will encourage us in the midst of whatever comes to be faithful and to be fearless. And he knows and he understands what we're going through. Whatever we go through, it won't be anything ultimately like what he went through. When he not only suffered at the hands of man, but he took on the full brunt of the wrath of God for you and I. So as a believer in Christ, you never have to suffer that. And that's good news today.